Yeah, Vaughn? I thought for sure you would kick off the show in Espanol. Yeah, you know, if I had any foresight or creativity whatsoever, I probably would have. Well, as as you've said a few times, we lack foresight. Oh, there's no question. There's no but question. I, I expected a little, you know, senoras y senoras. <laughs> well, should we do it again? And I'll just... We'll just pretend like that was my idea. No, I kind of like what you did just fine. I thought yeah. I, I thought it was pretty good. Just yeah, just making noise. Well, ladies and gentlemen, senores y senores, to Nubs's point, um, we will be focusing on an album today that. And by the way, we're doing another matinee performance right now. I think uh, maybe we're onto something with this daytime thing. Are we fresher? Maybe a little fresher, that? like a happy baby in the morning. You know. We're, we're, we're giggly rather than at night when we're just a couple of tired slobs. <laughs> but um, this should be a, a very um, interesting discussion about a very interesting album that was made 30 years ago, which is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, we, we've had a lot of moments on this, on the old podcast here of feeling old, but the fact that Jane's Addiction's Ritual Deal Habitual, which is the subject of episode 13 today. The fact that it's 30 years old um, makes me feel elderly. Not sure about you. I wouldn't say it makes me feel young. Um, I have lots of memories of this album because you just loved it so damn much. So that this, this album was like a, uh, it was like a soundtrack to middle school yeah this was a bit of an obsession and we'll get to it but uh maybe we'll find some youthful spirit which we uh often lack these days as we first go round and round Nubs, what's on the musical radar from an album standpoint here lately, buddy? I'm very picky about my Thin Lizzy. I don't know if that's a band that you fancy, but sure. uh, Thin Lizzy is one of those interesting bands that their albums were either like incredible or awful. <laughs> and I, and it, there was no sense to it. Uh, you know, there didn't seem to be a rhythm. There were no two or three album runs from Thin Lizzy. They seem to pick and choose their spots. So uh, I recently got a, a copy of Vagabonds of the Western World, which is certainly in the fantastic category when you talk about Thin Lizzy. An excellent album, one that's a little bit hard to find on vinyl, but they've done some reissues that I was able to uh, get my hands on one of those. Uh, Marillion's Script for a Jester's Tear, which is considered kind of one of those early 80s progressive rock classics. 
Marillion, of course, with Fish on lead vocals, who sounds a heck of a lot like Peter Gabriel. That album is really considered one of those early 80s classics in terms of British prog. And so script for a gesture's tear has been rounded round, especially because they just did a uh, surround sound remaster, a 5.1 surround sound, which is kind of one of those things I'm into. I like to buy classic albums at surround sound and hear what they sound like in five channels. So that's one of them. And then Fate's Warning, another kind of prog metal band that's been around forever. Uh, the album Inside Out which again, just did a reissue for on vinyl. And uh, so you're able to buy it for less than $150, which is a lot of fun. So kind of three reissued things that I've been getting into and, uh, and digging, you know, now that we're approaching fall, my musical tastes start to change a little bit. I start to get back into a little more metal and a little more hard rock stuff because, you know, summer is for the summer is for the hippie music. Fall is for the rock. Oh yeah, there, I mean, there's a seasonality to this, no question. How, checking in, how did uh, how did your virtual record store day end up? It ended up with uh, overpaying for about four items <laughs> from eBay and Discogs. Yeah, uh, I ended up picking up everything I wanted, but I would say paid a premium for it. Yeah, so I, I'll pay a little premium for being able to. Uh, to do it in my jammies versus going and waiting in lines from the compass of your own home. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. You mentioned last episode, the black crows lions record store day edition. And I actually went on discogs and the cheapest one was 80 bucks. And then some saint within the comments section said, Hey, if you want this for 30, you know, brand new from a legitimate retailer, here's the link. And, and I, uh, and I got it. So that was my one purchase that I basically got at, uh, you know, retail price, thanks to some fine patron out there who was looking out for his brother. So, you know, thank that, you. That's a good score. I can, I can assure you, I did not pay $30 for it. But if you multiply that number by two, you're in the ballpark. So see what is rounded round for you? Well, I'm going to start with the John Spencer Blues Explosion, which, uh, you know, certainly an all-time, you know, top 15, I would say, group for me. And a wonderful show that you and I went to um, many years ago. And uh, probably one of the more memorable concerts I think we've been to together. I mean, just, wow, those guys are, those guys truly are an explosion, you know, when you, when you go to see them live. But the Orange Album probably my favorite from them although it's always hard to you know their albums each kind of have their own identity but uh been really getting into the orange record which is really the one that kind of got me hooked on those guys in the first place the second something a little different is the elvis presley live madison square garden double lp set just an amazing version of you've lost that loving feeling on there where i mean the king just absolutely destroys it and this was sort of in the um, kind of early Fat Elvis stage, I would say. You know, he wasn't all in. He wasn't fully expanded, but he was starting to work on it a little bit. And uh, really great performance. And listening to the crowd on those live recordings is sometimes just as uh, interesting as listening to the performance. But his band was really tight at this time. It was, you know, I think probably one of his best live performances. And by the way, you know that it's kind of hilarious that you know that record of Elvis just talking to the crowd 
Yes. Do you know about this? Yes. (laughs) This was like, I think they had to fulfill a contractual obligation or something, or I don't know. There were some, there was some like legal licensing, whatever reason for doing this, but they actually put out an album of Elvis just like talking to the crowd in between songs. And they actually made a full album out of it and they actually sold quite a few of them. Yeah. That probably sold more than like, you know, an amazing album of music from that era. You know? Saturday Night Live did a great parody of, of that whole Elvis mania when they did a commercial for you could go see Elvis Presley's coat. Do oh, you yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. And like, yeah, you okay. could go watch oh, the yeah. coat great, before. Great sketch. Yeah. There yeah. was certainly a mania that happened there that got pretty ridiculous. I love the the debates about, you know, what's better, young Elvis or fat Elvis? I mean, dude. There's like no contest. Fat Elvis was so much better. Oh, completely. Completely. I mean, you know, fat, sweaty Elvis, even better. I mean, that's, that's yes. next level. That's next level. King. The fatter and sweatier the king, the better the king. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, going back and listening to his old stuff is great, particularly the live stuff. And, you know, obviously Elvis is Elvis, but really enjoy listening to his band. You know, there there were some years where... He just had really great musicianship, not terribly surprising, and, and just a really kind of tight operation going there um, with his backing band. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun to revisit. So the Madison Square Garden, I think, might be his best live album, but you know he's had a few that are pretty damn good. And then lastly is another anniversary um, album, and this is the Australian band Powderfinger, who are re-releasing um, on vinyl, I believe for the first time, of uh, their album from the late 90s, Odyssey Number no. 5, which is an outstanding record, a great band, a band that dissolved a few years ago, and you get the feeling is kind of teasing the idea of maybe making a comeback. But when you uh, talk to anybody who hails from the great uh, country of Australia, Silver Chair and Powderfinger are really two of the bands that come to mind from, you know, kind of this, you know, more 90s era. Obviously, there were some great bands before that. ACDC was pretty good. Um, and NXS was pretty good, too. But, you know, a very, very well-known band that never really hit in the U.S., but uh, uh, really looking forward to this reissue of Odyssey Number no. 5. It's a great record. So that's what's round and round. I want to start off with a quote about ritual dilo habitual from somebody with a little bit of credibility. This person said, I can spot traces of other people on this album, myself included, but that's all they are traces. They were a really original band. This is their peak album where they really went out on a limb. Sometimes they get so caught up in these songs. I can actually feel the band pushing themselves to their limits. Sometimes I can't believe how strong it is. I wonder if this will have the same effect on some kids as Chuck Berry had on me. And that was said by Alice Cooper about Ritual Delo Habitual, um, kind of back around the time that it came out. And I think, you know, when you think about Jane's addiction and this sort of unheralded, I think in a lot of ways, contribution and importance to kind of the overall development of 90s rock and the eventual grunge scene and all these things. You you know, the Seattle groups 
are the ones that really get a lot of the credit, I guess, for lack of a better word, for this onset of a new musical attitude and a new musical energy. And we've talked a lot on past episodes about being genreless. And I think that when everybody could kind of fold into this grunge bucket, it made it easy to really provide proper accolades to Nirvana and to Soundgarden and to Alice in Chains and to, you know, insert any other influential 90s band that could fit into this grunge thing. When you really put how and where Jane's Addiction started into context, it really does show their originality because, you know, these are all LA guys. And the LA scene in the 80s, I think we all know what that was. You know, that was hair metal and that was glam rock and glam metal. And and you see a little bit of that in some of the things Jane's Addiction was doing, but it really puts into context the kind of directional originality that these guys displayed. And it started early. It started well before Ritual Dilo Habitual. Now it's probably one of the most unheralded, underrated, underappreciated bands out there historically. Nubs, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? So I completely agree on the originality. This is a band that truly created its own sound and its own style. You've got four very, very unique musicians coming together. It's certainly hard for me to say that an album that went two times platinum is unheralded. I do think it's a good example of a band that was a little mismanaged. And I'm not putting that on an external factor. I'm putting that on the aforementioned four members who maybe got a little caught up in their own brilliance and forgot that being a band is much more than just the creative process. There's other Mm -hmm. things involved. And just like so many albums that we talk about in our discussions, you're talking about young artists. You know, you're talking about people that aren't seasoned. They haven't learned a lot about the business. Um, They haven't learned a lot about the ins and outs of working together as a team or what it takes to survive in such a fast moving organization like Jane's Addiction had to be right around 1990. But I think what really hurt them is their inability to manage being a band. And, you know, pretty soon after this album, you saw things really start to fall apart. And they've certainly done the the reunion tours and, you know, the nostalgia circuit and things like that. But none of that will ever capture the original glory of what we're going to talk about here in this uh, in this edition. So and while it's great to have them still around and still active and doing things here and there. It's disappointing that the greatness was not truly realized. Things were falling apart even before this process started. And uh, why don't we get into it here with the uh, nerdy deets, which last time I checked are done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah! You want some dirty deets? Ritual de lo habitual was the second and in its original form, final studio album by Jane's Addiction, which was released 
on August 21st of 1990. The band members, as Nubs mentioned, a very important part of this entire story, not just in terms of playing, but in terms of personalities and in terms of lifestyles. Four athletes, I would say, on their instruments, all four of them, each just as important as the other, which actually gets into the conversation about some of this conflict that arose. But first, you know, focusing on these four guys, all Southern California guys, all Los Angeles area guys that certainly had an artistic approach in common and in a lot of ways, a musical approach in common of wanting to do something different. Jane's Addiction is probably the ultimate example of the anti-hair metal, anti-glam metal thing that arose in the early 90s. And obviously with this album coming out in 1990, which is a year before Nirvana's Nevermind, you can probably safely say that this was the first time where people really took notice of something different happening. And a lot of that had to do with these four band members. We'll start with Steve Perkins, the drummer, who is a fantastically underrated rock drummer and percussionist. I think he's a true percussionist, not somebody who just gets behind a drum set and beats and bangs. And certainly there are a lot of examples on this album and really on what Steve Perkins continued to do because he drummed with Porno for Pyros, which was the post-Jane's Addiction project. And has been not only kind of the most reliable member of this band and this project, Stephen Perkins was the most low drama of the group. He was the most, you know, positive energy contributor of the group and really avoided a lot of this intra conflict that he eventually broke the group down. And you almost kind of feel bad for Steve Perkins a little bit in the way that things shook out because while you could point to the three other members as having plenty of blame as to how things ended up, you can't really point to Perkins as being the supplier of drama in any way whatsoever. And obviously the resident drummer of the old podcast here, Nubs, um, interested in your quick thoughts on Steve Perkins as a drummer. The drummer never causes problems in the band ever. See, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, Stephen Perkins is a great percussionist. He's very unique, just like all four of these members. Not one of these musicians were typical at their instrument. And Stephen Perkins epitomizes that maybe more than the other three. Um, very, very unique artists that combine to make up this group. I'm going to mention Perry Farrell next. You know, sometimes I think Perry gets more credit than he should for what Jane's Addiction was. Now, an incredible vocalist, and there's really never been another voice like Perry Farrell's. I think we can safely say a complete original almost kind of uses his voice as an instrument. The band wouldn't be what it is without him. There's no question. And, you know, lyrically and artistically, Obviously, a lot of those things were really important to what Jane's Addiction became. He's clearly a pretty zany artist who oftentimes seemed to have trouble keeping groups 
or keeping dynamics together. And almost to your point from the get-go nubs, a guy who sort of was thrusted into the front man role and thrusted into the CEO role of, it could be argued of this band and certainly of many other projects that followed and just never seemed to really be able to keep things solid and keep things together. But my goodness, what a voice. And my goodness, what a presence for this band in particular. His, his voice is such a trademark part of this band. And again, like Stephen Perkins, unique. Perry Farrell is not going to get up at a karaoke bar and wow people. He's not that kind of singer. But when you combine it with the other elements of this band, it's, it's magical. But you also learn a lot about just his, his kind of visionary aspect as an artist. You know, the guy who started Lollapalooza and had some, some business offerings that really have lasted for decades. I don't know if he was the true leader of the band or not. That's probably up for debate. And maybe that's a point of controversy is maybe he thought he was and maybe he really wasn't. But he certainly had a presence that was so powerful. There's some bands that could get away with, you know, a vocal, uh, the replacement of a vocalist or a change in a vocalist. Jane's Addiction, it would have never worked. And that's a testament to how vital Perry was to this group. No question. The, the beginning of a lot of the problems for this band started on the previous album called Nothing Shocking, which came out in 1988. And Perry Farrell sat down with the band as they were, you know, kind of in the process of finalizing their, what was really their major label debut. And Perry informed the band that his expectation was to get 50% of all of the royalties for writing the lyrics and that the remainder would be split between the remaining three members. And by all accounts, apparently this was a, not not terribly surprising, a gigantic problem within the band. And one that was really kind of the beginning of something that likely in many cases was already brewing from a personality standpoint and a compatibility standpoint with the member of the band that many have argued is actually the most important member, and that's Eric Avery, the bass player. And in many cases, as you can tell from so many different Jane's Addiction songs, a guy who had a very heavy hand in a lot of the composition. Eric Avery is a guy who was tremendously important to this band musically. And I mean, think about how many well-known and beloved Jane's Addiction songs start with the bass. So Up the Beach, uh, Mountain Song. Summertime Rolls, Three Days, No One's Leaving, uh, Ain't No Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like the, the impact of the bass was just terribly important to this band. And that was evident through their entire catalog. Eric Avery and Perry Farrell were really at the center of this main conflict and this main dispute within this band. But probably one of the best rock bassists ever one of the most important to their band. And, you know, I don't think he's playing, I don't think he's rifling off licks like Getty Lee or anything, but as far as using the bass as a lead and how that impacted so many of Jane's addiction songs, including many that we're going to talk through today, 
tremendously important to this band. Yeah, you called it best. I mean, if there's a band that started songs with bass more than Gene's Addiction, particularly when you look at a band that also has a pretty incredible guitarist, I'd love to know who it is because you just you just named several songs and not just songs, but kind of excellent Jane's addiction songs that all lead with bass in some way, shape or form. So like we said, for the others, Eric Avery, very unique, extremely important. The fourth and final athlete as part of this band is Dave Navarro, obviously pretty well known, ended up joining the red hot chili peppers for a brief period of time after Jane's addiction Married Carmen Electra was on reality shows. So, so Dave Navarro became, you know, kind of more of your, you know, more mainstream star. And uh, obviously a guy that I think a lot of um, wives and moms in their, uh, you know, 40s uh, probably have on their uh, immunity list. If I ever get to, uh, you know, hook up with a celebrity. I'm going Dave Navarro on this one. I think you'll find a lot of middle-aged women would, would take him in their top five. I think he might be in mine. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> well, he's a great guitar player. And, you know, I think a big theme certainly on this record is the guitar tone from Dave Navarro. And a lot of that came from his effects. A lot of that came from his playing. He's outstanding. He has some absolutely brilliant moments on this album. One of the biggest problems is that Dave Navarro really doesn't remember recording this album. And the impact and influence of drug use on this album, on this band, was really important. In a lot of ways, I think, is what led to a lot of the separation that you started to see around this time because Perry Farrell was using Stephen Perkins was kind of using Dave Navarro was in a blackout, basically the whole process and Eric Avery was becoming sober. And it seems like this period of time where the band was kind of trying to figure out the long game here and some were thinking that way and some weren't. And it's an important factor when all four members weren't, kind of in that same club anymore. And you saw this a lot with group dynamics back then. It really puts a lot of pressure on members going in different directions. In a lot of ways, it helped create an element to this album that we talked about a little bit last week with Pink Floyd when they recorded the final cut and we touched on the Beatles when they recorded the White Album where it's very siloed. Band members are kind of coming in as individuals to the studio in an effort to kind of create this collective effort. And that's in a lot of ways, the way that ritual deal habitual was recorded. You know, the band was not firing on all cylinders <laughs> dynamically. And as far as their personalities and as far as their interaction, but boy, I think we, uh, we sure realize now that they were firing on all cylinders musically. And in a lot of ways it's due to, those four members and the way they were able to collaborate and the way they were able to musically communicate by the time it got down to putting out this second album. The album cover is an interesting part of this story because number one, it's very iconic. It also kind of ties in artistically to part of the story of this album and the story of one track in particular. 
But also there were actually two covers. There had to be an alternate cover because of the paper mache nudity that exists on the original. So what they did is they put out a second version that had an all white cover that contains the text of the first amendment, which is the freedom of speech, you know, amendment of the constitution, you know, which was a little bit of an F you to everybody because there were a lot of retailers at that point that wouldn't carry ritual based on the original album cover. My understanding is it was a statue of paper mache that Perry and, you know, one of his artistic girlfriends at the time helped put together and it depicts really the lyrical content of the song three days. And I don't want to get too into Perry Farrell's world because we'll be here for hours if we decide to do that as far as themes and lyrics. But um, I guess the the best way to say it is it depicts a uh, uh, menage a trois, if you will, that uh, Perry and his girlfriend were uh, experiencing over a weekend of um, probably some uh, substances and apparently uh, some good times had by all. No, so, no substances. So that's just good, clean, just good, clean fun. So that's what's being depicted. Um, and, you know, it probably is sort of tame by today's standards. But 30 years ago, this album cover was pretty risque, pretty randy, if you will, um, and caused some controversy. Let's get to the wonder stories. I'm very interested in uh, your uh, past and current thoughts on Jane's addiction and their impact on your musical experience. So let's get to it. Nubs, what are your recollections of first discovering this band? I don't know, you, just you, like for like three years, just basically listening to <laughs> nothing else. Yeah. Guilty. Me with my Yes and Genesis albums in my room and through the, the bedroom wall that, you know, was next to mine hearing, you know, I must have been on the same wacky stuff that Dave Navarro was. Cause I, I actually don't remember the first time I heard Jane's addiction. The obvious answer would be, would be the Ben caught stealing video, but it wasn't that it was, I, I believe it was summertime rolls. And I believe it was at like a junior high party or something like that. And we turned all the lights off and somebody put on this song and I was like, Whoa, who is this? I, I do remember that as one of my earliest Jane's addiction memories. So I don't know that that's the first time I ever heard them, but I certainly remember not knowing who it was and thinking that it was a pretty incredible song and then learning more basically through you. I wouldn't say I really rediscovered Ritual de la Habitual until years later, probably when I was maybe in college and got a little bit more into the album tracks because, you know, as a kid, you, you kind of you like stop because it opens and it's real adventurous and Ben caught stealing was a huge hit, but I didn't really get into some of the other things that frankly are much, much more fascinating on this album than those until later and learned a little bit more about the complexities of the album and 
some of the things that were going on in it that maybe didn't make the radio. I, I was a late arriver, if you will, to to the glory of this album. And I've, you know, thoroughly enjoyed listening to it regularly for the last, you know, 15, 20 years in retrospect, much more than I did at the time. But I, I would say in the end, your Jane's addiction fascination had a trickle effect into me, you know, learning more about this band and getting more into them. So with that being said, I think your wondrous story is quite a bit more important than mine. I don't know if it's more important, but that this band certainly had a huge hand in my, you know, musical transition in the early nineties of going from basically a steady dose of eighties pop, which I still love hair metal, which I still thoroughly enjoy into this new and different realm. And a lot of that was influenced by friends. And, you know, this was the time where we were starting to play music. This was the time we were starting to figure out like who were the kids at school that you could like jam with and who were the kids at school that actually were decent at their instrument and who were the kids at school that you had musical commonality with. And there was one kid in particular, his name was Dave H who, um, who I was in my first band with and, you know, we were terrible and everything, but this guy really introduced me to a lot of music and he had an older brother who was, you know, always kind of into the next big thing and not the mainstream thing, but the, you know, kind of influential, cool thing. And these guys were all about Jane's addiction. Even before this album came out during nothing shocking and all that. I was so impressed with this dude's musical knowledge and musical interests. And I really got to credit him for introducing me to this band. I did have a pretty substantial musical moment to the song Ocean Size, which is on Nothing Shocking, which is the second track. Starts off with this beautiful acoustic guitar and uh, Perry kind of doing his angelic you know, kind of humming thing. And then Perry L's three, four, as he often did, he liked to count, you know, during these songs a lot. And it just comes in with this blistering guitar and drum assault. And, and I remember that one being like a big moment for me. It was like, Whoa, who is this? This is, this is amazing. And that was probably right around the time that ritual either had come out or was sort of in the process of coming out. I really got this band. I really kind of understood what they were going for and what they were doing, albeit it was very eclectic and very diverse. But there was just something about them that was a very, very important thing for me. And we talked previously about the albums of the year. Well, Ritual de Lo Habitual is my first ever album of the year in 1990. And it's up on the wall and it will always be the first one that kicked off this uh, annual assessment of album of the year that we've done for the 30 years since. The other big thing actually happened more recently with this record. And that's when Jade's Addiction went on the Ritual Dilo Habitual tour in 2016, where they were playing the album in full. I don't know if you remember 
we had our tickets and they were, they were fine. They were kind of in the middle and of the venue and sort of in the middle as far as how many rows back in the day of, I found a single front row ticket on a, you know, one of the resale websites or whatever for not that much money because it was a single ticket and I jumped on it and Dinosaur Jr. and Living Color played. And I remember, you know, sitting with you guys and hanging out with you guys during, but once Jane's Addiction started, I actually went to the front solo and was basically right in front of Dave Navarro and Perry the entire show and got to experience them playing this record start to finish, which you just never thought you'd see. And it was special. It was an incredible show. They were really on and um, being able to be that close to the band and be that close to this, you know, album being played in full um, on that tour was really special and uh, glad we were able to go see that. I'm so glad we could check the box. It was awesome in its presentation. The sound sounded like, you know, some guys who were maybe, maybe a little past their pure musical prime. Um, particularly Perry, you know, he's never been known for being a stellar live performer in terms of vocal performance, but the energy and the presence and all the things that you would want to see if Jane's Addiction was going to play this incredibly beloved album top to bottom, they were all there. And you got to see some songs that you probably would never otherwise see them play if they were doing more of a nostalgia greatest hits type of show. So. I thought that was really cool. It was, it was awesome that uh, you had the chance to do that. All right. Well, and I agreed. Uh, seeing that show was special and it was um, great. And they had actually, Eric Avery rejoined the band for a rather quick tour with Nine Inch Nails uh, a few years before that. Um, but as per usual, you know, Eric and Perry just couldn't get it together. And that ended up being you know, basically a flash in the pan, but we were able to go see that show as well, which was great. I mean, seeing them with Eric is just something you certainly didn't think you would ever see. And uh, while it was only once and it'll probably only be once for until the end of time here, um, glad we got to see both those things. Let's dig into it. We got nine tracks as we drop the needle. Ladies and gentlemen, we have more influence over your children than you do, but we love them. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Jane's Addiction. That is what you hear, albeit in Espanol, to kick off with the rather well-known track one, Stop. So you kind of see all of the band members really showing their, as I described, athleticism right away. And it's all four of them. 
you know, particularly Perry's vocal performance on this is pretty outstanding. This is not a song that just anybody could apply proper vocal melody to. And uh, to your earlier point, this isn't one that I think a lot of people are are trying to get up there and try on karaoke. Um, this is an unbelievably, you know, complicated and difficult song to execute vocally. And it's a really critical part of it. The energy, you know, it's, it's kind of fitting that the, the, uh, the track has an exclamation point on it because I think that's really what you're getting musically slows down a little bit in the middle section, which kind of gives you a little bit of a breather. And then Navarro just rips a solo. Perry has the acapella vocal section and then right to the outro. I mean, it's a really well-constructed song. And I think, you know, if somebody popped this record in, even somebody that knew about nothing shocking and was kind of into the band, the the way it was produced and Dave Jordan, by the way, is on production and in a very, you know, clean layered, you know, excellent rock producer at that time was able to capture the energy of stop and present it properly right from the get go. I think it's a really important way to start this record. Quintessential opener. Could you imagine this song in any other sequence on the album? I mean, it just absolutely not. Yeah. It just works so perfectly to kick things off. Very up-tempo. This band shows a lot of different cards within an album. They can be spacey and they can be groovy, but here they're just sort of rocking out. It might even be a hair rollicking, I must admit, until you get some dynamics in that kind of late song breakdown when it goes into just the acapella. That to me is some of the the kind of genius behind the song is they break it down to voice and then they do this slurry kind of re-entry back into the main riff. It's, it's just insanely cool. Now here's the important question. Can you do the acapella part? Do you have it memorized and could you do it right now? We did not oh, plan man. this ladies and gentlemen. I, I could try. I, I probably mess up a couple words, but I could try. Let's hear it. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Are let's we, give this a shot. We got Dave ripping a solo right here. I'll try. Here we go. Get back, get back that automobile, turn off that smokestack and that goddamn radio. Come, come along with me. Come along in the TV. Whoa, 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 two, three, four. Oh, you did it, man. You nailed it. Good job. Did I? Yeah. Wow. I think it says hum along with me, not come along with me, but who cares? It's, uh, you nailed it. I mean, wow. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night, but I can remember that. I got to admit, buddy. I, I didn't think you had that one. I, uh, I thought you were going to get to, you know, maybe automobile or smokestack and then lose it, but, uh, well done. Well played. And I apologize. I sing like a drummer, but Hey, at least we got through it. Well, you know, you're imitating Perry Farrell. It's kind of like you can just, as long <laughs> yeah. as you're, as long as you're high pitched, as long as you're squeezing that butt real tight, you're, you're going <laughs> to be, be close enough. Let's get to a, no one's leaving.
So you mentioned earlier this one, you know, kicks off with the bass and drums. And listen, uh, from a rhythm section standpoint, this is one that I do think is unheralded. I mean, you got Eric Avery and Steve Perkins when they're locked in, complimenting these big fat. I mean, Eric Avery played big fat grooves and chords and octaves. I mean, he, you know, he really had command over the bass. And Steve was a very rhythmic, you know, percussionist and was able to often complement these things with a lot of creativity. So, you know, those guys kicking off this track is really good. It's a, it's a kind of short, snappy song, as is the next one, but one that, uh, you know, is pretty memorable. And also, you know, back then in, in, in this time, and again, I think it's another way of Jane's Addiction being original, no one's leaving as anything but a single, you know? So they weren't like putting the single in track two and sort of this more traditional album format that you saw, you know, really start to begin at that time and really continues to this day. So it's kind of unique for a a track two to have it be more of what is a little bit more of an ambiguous kind of jammy, you know, kind of tune without, you know, verse chorus, verse structure and that sort of thing. But musically some cool stuff going on here in this more, you know, up-tempo number. Again, no finesse. You know, the the album gets off to an almost frantic start which leads you to believe this band is something they're not because the, the way this album opens is not really trademark Jane's addiction, but I, I kind of like the way it, it gets your attention with the up-tempo energy. And then of course, by mid album, it goes into something completely different, but it's a good song. Great Eric Avery bass part and some really cool stuff from Perkins for sure. It's a great point by you. I mean, it, it is frantic. I mean, you look at, you know, these first three tracks and before things kind of calm down a little bit, you know, you got, you're getting pretty much hit over the head with a crowbar, you know, on all three with up-tempo stuff, uh, really kind of heavy stuff. That idea of being rather frantic and certainly driving continues here with Ain't No Right. The thing that always really jumps out at me about Ain't No Right, uh, which again, this continued franticness, is Dave Navarro's guitar tone. You know, I mean, this really, you hear that finger picky thing that you hear him do often with those kind of sweeping chorus effects on it. It's just beautiful guitar tone. And then you really get him playing that sort of more metal, palm muted type tone. It really shows, I think, the different sounds that Navarro was producing. And look, this album is a tremendous record for him. You know, some of the lead work that he's doing, but even on a song like Ain't No Right, you know, some of this melodic stuff that he's producing, you know, during that kind of main hook, as well as during those really driving verses is always what jumps out at me. Dude has a lot of clubs in his bag. He can play ethereal styles. He can riff like nobody's business. Um, he can really solo, you know, I mean, he can really shred solos. Oh yeah. No question. We use the word underrated, overlooked a lot. I think that one of the issues with Navarro is he became such a celebrity and especially around the time of like all the Carmen Electra and all that kind of like MTV stuff. He became such a celebrity that I do think he became overlooked as a, as a musician. 
And he's done a good job, I think, of retaining himself as, hey, guys, I'm a musician first. You know, I dabble in some of these other things. And and he does have a great personality and he's, you know, super good looking and all those things. But first and foremost, he's a guitarist. And you can't forget that. And when you go see Jane's Addiction and you just see him in the context as the guitarist, you're reminded of that. And this song's a good example of that. He's showing a lot of kind of his broad taste throughout Ain't No Right. And again, it, it, it's a little it's a little frantic for me. It doesn't have enough dynamics for me to consider this a favorite on the album, but I do like what Navarro's doing for sure. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting with him. A lot of people who probably go see Jane's Addiction live probably get kind of starstruck seeing him on stage and you know, with the mascara and the nip rings and you know, the leather pants and I mean that's all that's all the stuff you typically think about uh, and I'm sure a lot of the uh, ladies are thinking about when they think about Dave Navarro. But when you see him live, you know, to your point, you really do realize that he is a guitar player. I mean, he's a really really good player great tones, great shreddability, you know, to your point about his lead playing, you know, it's really a treat to go see the band live really to watch all of the athletes on stage, but certainly to watch Navarro and realize that he's much more uh, musically than just a reality TV star and sort of a celebrity um, because dude can really play. We kind of get to our first breather of the record here um, with a kind of unique song that different Jane's Addiction fans have different views on. I'm certainly interested in yours with Obvious. So Nubs, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think, so when we were at the ritual show, and I went up to the front row and all that. And, you know, we had this moment as we do always after a show where we kind of do our debrief. I think if I remember correctly that, you know, we, you know, kind of ran up to each other as the crowd was clearing out and we, you know, we were on our way out and it was the first moment we had seen each other since the Jane set. And I think the first thing we said was, obvious whoa like that yeah. was amazing you know I, I i believe that was almost at the same time we both said boy what a freaking treat to hear that one great call that's exactly what we said is the first thing we said it really was a monster that night and again some of the other songs in the album were not captured you know quite as meticulously as one might want but obvious was perfect and then some. I mean, they almost found a new element to the groove in their later age that wasn't even there on the album. This is easily top three on the album for me. I love the way it lays down into this pocket. Again, kind of the dynamics near the end of the song with Navarro's kind of more chugging guitar and the way they use some of the buildups. Um, Avery's just pacing it completely with, you know, a fantastic bass line. And I, I kind of like that Perry's the least important part of this song, you know, and, and that's one trademark of obvious is this song really is about the three players much more than it is the voice. What he's doing is is more of a, a fourth instrument than it is anything else. And I think that's what makes this song special. I, I love obvious. I loved it that night. And I I really appreciate its role on this record. Agree with everything you said, you know. And I don't know if it was Perry that had enough 
awareness to sort of sit back on this one or if um you know eric and dave and perkins had to like you know handcuff him to the you know floor in order to get him to uh have a little bit less presence because almost certainly the latter yeah yeah exactly perry farrell is is a fan of his own presence i think it's fair to say but um however it happened or maybe it was dave jordan who knows but however it happened you know this this musical odyssey that obvious um really is and to your point not as reliant on the on the vocals kind of goes along with what i was saying earlier in that oftentimes Perry gets pointed to as the indisputable, most important element of this band and a song like this kind of reminds you otherwise. So here we go with the, uh, the top 40 hit for uh, Jane's addiction, which sort of made them mainstream, certainly a bizarre and memorable video uh, on MTV with a very beloved song and certainly probably the well, the most well-known song by these guys and been caught stealing. You know, uh, some of these songs just become so, you know, anthemic and, and so notorious that oftentimes you forget to kind of take a step back and sort of, you know, do your best to analyze them. This is a tremendously unique, interesting song as far as what Dave's doing on guitar with this sort of kind of jammy, you know, kind of groovy lick on the guitar. And then Eric is playing this repetitive pulsating thing that you just wouldn't think matches that guitar part in any way. And Perkins is playing, you know, what became a famous, you know, um, drum part in, in that groove and that ability to kind of almost in a sort of disco beat, you know, keep that one chugging along. And then Perry's vocals on this are amazing, you know, with the hooks and with the, you know, it's, it's not really a verse chorus verse, but it's so freaking hooky. And that's because of Perry. So people probably just hear this song and want to dance around. But when you really break down the parts and the approach, and obviously lyrically, it's more just kind of silly than anything else. It's a really kind of interesting, fascinating song when you break it down. You're playing a game of what's the riff. There's three riffs in this song. And it's very, very rare to have three riffs going on in one song. The first riff is Now who's playing that riff? That would be Navarro. Correct. So that's riff number one. That's Dave Navarro playing the guitar riff. Riff number two, just as much a riff, is do 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 now who's that? That's Eric. Eric on Drop, bass. Dropping it. Yes, sir. Just as much of a riff as the first one. You know, many people are going to hear that song and the hook for them is going to be Dave's riff. Many people are going to hear that song and the hook for them is going to be what Eric's doing. The third riff far and away is to to cat kaka katu to to cat kaka. That's a riff. That's not oh, a yeah. drum part. That's a riff. Oh yeah. With that hi-hat opening and closing too, which is providing that groove to it. Exactly. So when you go to a Jane's Addiction show and they're playing this song, or if you were in a club or something in the 90s and this song was playing, people are grooving to that riff. 
not that drum part, but that riff. He's a very melodic drummer. And in this case, he's doing something that's just as catchy as what the others are doing. So three riffs in one song means that it's going to be one of those universally loved songs, which it certainly became to be. I mean, moms loved Ben Caught Stealing just as much as kids, right? And I think that's because different ears can pick out different things within the song. It's, I, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites on the album, but I so appreciate its musicality and what it, what it did by combining all these personalities into this one hit single. Indeed. And really provides, I think, a great prelude to really the, the, the epic of this album. And a lot of people probably think I'm just talking about three days, but I'm actually talking about the next two tracks. In a lot of ways, I've always kind of grouped them together, which is, you know, difficult because that makes for an 18 minute experience. But I really think the next two songs, in a lot of ways, from a storytelling standpoint, from a lyrical standpoint, and most importantly, from a tremendously epic, important musical standpoint, um, that these two songs work together in a way that's very, very tremendous and very, very important. And that starts with clocking in at 10 minutes, 50 seconds in three parts, three days. So on this one, we're going to play a clip from the three main parts because this is not a verse, chorus, verse structure by any means. In fact, it's a trilogy musically. And again, not to dig too hard into Perry's world here, but you know, the album cover really depicts what this song is about, which is this strangely episodic, you know, romantic account of a weekend where Perry Farrell and my understanding is current girlfriend as well as ex-girlfriend decided to uh, spend a long weekend together. And, you know, the lyrics are very interesting and atmospheric, you know, from that standpoint. And I do think complement um, this story of three days, you know, pretty well from a musical standpoint, but really when you boil it down, You've got three parts. This first one is really this, um, again, Eric Avery. You know, you can tell this bass line was all him. A bit more sweeping, certainly a bit more slow and pretty atmospheric, particularly at the end of that clip there where the uh, guitar comes in heavy and kind of builds the slow section to uh, sort of this uh, crescendo. And obviously this proceeds into something that becomes extremely powerful, but uh, any thoughts on just kind of that first section there, Nubs? Not a ton. I actually think the first section was hard to get through at 13, 12, full transparency. One of the reasons I discovered three days later was because I usually just didn't really understand even the first few minutes of it. So I'd kind of move on to something else. Um, So I think it's a great setup for what's to come. But in itself is just sort of a, a, a nice, spacey intro, if you will. Well, section two kind of takes you in a, a much more um, rhythmic direction here. Yeah. 
And obviously, this is a rather iconic solo from Dave Navarro uh, in the moment of the song where, you know, he really rips it. And, you know, the drums that Perkins is providing during this, I mean, if you listen to all the intricacies of what he's doing, he was really good at using both hands. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on there. And of course, Avery just with this pulsating driving bass beat behind it. Um, it's a, it's a really powerful section musically here in the middle of this trilogy of three days. You know, we talked about Pink Floyd's epics last week. It, this song is extremely Floyd in just the overall thoughtfulness that they put into it, the build, the kind of story that is being told musically. This song really is paced by this section right here. This is the bridge between the kind of psychedelic introduction and then the huge, huge grand epicness of the last few minutes. We'll give you a little bit of that final section, and I agree it is grand and it is epic. I mean, just <laughs> just intense stuff going on there, you know, and um, it's one of those epics where it'd be really fascinating to have a better idea of how that all got composed and pieced together because it all does work and it all does set up in this three-part fashion. It's a magical track and one that um, I think was really important to this certainly this decade and, and kind of this whole thought around progressive alternative pre-grunge, you know, type music. It's, it's something that you just hadn't seen a lot of. And to your point, I think is well influenced. And I think that the, the Pink Floyd connection is certainly worthy, but I just think three days is a terribly important song. They had a very good day that day or week that week or month that month. We've talked in previous episodes about the connection between, you know, substances, chemicals, and, <laughs> and outstanding music. It's amazing to think that a group of rather strung out dudes could kind of have the wherewithal to piece together such an amazing piece. But at the same time, maybe the two are actually hand in hand. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a part of this song and, you know, very explicitly. And, you know, the, these guys were always pretty ambiguous about composition. I mean, you knew the lyrics were coming from Perry Farrell, obviously, but everything's credited to the entire band. So as far as, as far as how a, a, a track like this really was built and really came together, it's probably uh, a bit more of a mystery than anything. But, you know, it's, it's fair to say that musically, this track is pretty symbolic of what seemed to be a collaboration and to your point with all the drama and the drug use and as i mentioned earlier this band really wasn't cohesive at this time they were kind of doing this in a lot of ways individually to come up with something like this that really is as collective as it ends up being is just almost astounding as to how they were able to do it and you know the beauty of this is you get through three days and you're like you know, feel like you need a nap because you've like been through so much 
energy and so much power and you hear the intro to then she did and you're kind of like okay this is our chance to calm down and then you get almost as much of an emotional powerful musical and lyrical statement and like i said oftentimes i really do think of these 18 minutes as one thing collectively but then she did track seven So I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, best song in the album? Probably. I go back and forth on this three days and obvious. Obvious usually would get the bronze medal at most times. It's this in three days. I go back and forth. In the end, I think then she did is just a little more majestic. I love the strings. I think the strings maybe break the tie and just the, the rhythms that they're exploring when they get to the heavy peak of the song just creates such an atmosphere of, of, you know, just complete. It's, it's kind of blowing your mind at that moment. Lyrically, a lot going on here. Um, Perry had a ex-girlfriend who was the aforementioned participant in three days that died of a drug overdose. And then she did, you know, directly relates to that. Perry Farrell's mother committed suicide when he was four years old and sort of the back half lyrically relates to that. This connection, this weird connection that Perry Farrell and Dave Navarro had when they first met was actually that both of their mothers died tragically. Dave Navarro's mother was murdered when he was at a young age. And, you know, there's a lot going on with these guys. I mean, (laughs) you know, these were not uh, spoiled LA kid. I mean, these were artistic, kids that you know probably in a lot of ways were pretty complex and pretty sensitive and and probably in a lot of ways that's what led to a lot of the lifestyle and you know especially as these guys were getting successful and acquiring money and fame and these things it's it's a complicated story in a lot of ways with these guys and then she did lyrically gives you a little bit of a window into that at least from perry's perspective in some of the you know devastation that he experienced with death and overdose and these things that you know in a lot of cases were happening around these guys quite a bit and in a lot of cases which led to this decision that these four guys had to make about how they thought they should go forward and probably these differing decisions on what they should be not just as a band but more importantly as individuals in a lot of ways is probably what tore them apart So we get to the last two tracks here, Uh, track eight, the very unique, of course. So... probably a fair amount of people that turned the album off after then she did i never disliked of course but i mean it's gained a little bit of an appreciation for it it's got some kind of unique you know sort of um 
if it's tribal or Middle Eastern type rhythms to it. And obviously it's a unique song. I'm not sure it needs to be seven minutes long, you know, kind of drags on quite a bit with the instrumentation. Um, when they played it on the ritual in full show, it was cool. You know, it's just a song you never thought you'd see live, but I always see this is kind of the beginning of coming back to earth a little bit after, particularly after then she did where your, you know, head is spinning a little bit. Think of this album as a, a long flight, you know, like a transcontinental flight or something. And then she did is, is when the wheels hit the runway, you, the plane has landed. And the final two songs are like that long taxi, you know, getting to <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the jetway and finally getting, getting your feet back on planet Earth. Both songs have their moments, but the album ends with a thud more than an explosion. So I kind of am one of those people that tend to think that it ends after then she did after those final notes. I don't spend a lot of time with either one of these songs, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I kind of dig like the idea behind the song, but yeah, it's, it's crazy long and it, it ne- never really goes anywhere. Yeah. And then things close up with classic girl. And there you have it. You know, I kind of like that ending. I think it's, uh, you know, it kind of picks up the pace a little bit and provides you with, you know, something that's pretty upbeat and, and, and rather hopeful musically there at the end. Um, but I would have to agree with you. I think your analogy on the airplane uh, ride is, is very, very good and very accurate. I think the last couple minutes of classic girl are really cool when it does finally pick up and go somewhere. The thing about classic girl that always astounds me, it was a single and it was the fourth single off the album, but it came out effectively like an entire year after the album came out. And you could sense that it's like, Oh, how can we get one more maxi single out there and a few more B sides out in the universe? Cause it, it's not a single and it certainly was not a hit single by any means, but I, I'm still surprised that it even had that status. Well, and I never really liked nor understood why they bring on that big fat, you know, electric drum beat. Um, you know, I always found that to be misplaced and kind of just weird. I mean, it's this very, vintage sounding slow drum beat that just doesn't seem necessary. And I feel like dynamically there were things they could have done with this. I do like the ending as well. Um, But yeah, it's a bit of a yawner before you get to that part. And a lot of people love this song, you know, and I'm not sure how much of that's lyrical versus musical, but it kind of falls off a cliff here. You know, you, you, you have this like unbelievable power and intensity. And oftentimes you're used to a record like this closing in some sort of fashion that's memorable. And I'm not sure that I would designate classic girl as terribly memorable. So there we have it. Ritual Dilo habitual nine tracks. 51 minutes and really takes you on quite the ride. The band split up after this album. I think that's pretty well known. 
And as we've talked about, they've pieced things together in in different ways since and have been able to tour and have been able to, you know, kind of keep the story and keep the music alive to an extent. They did put out two additional studio albums um, that were separated out by quite a bit of time. And, and they're different. You know, it's a different Jane's. Um, no Eric Avery. But, you know, they've both been pretty good. In fact, Strays was noted as sort of a pioneering album with uh, the new metal genre. You know, it was kind of an early example of uh, guitar layering and some of these things that you really saw become a trend. So once again, even in their sort of later career, still finding a way to to be trendsetters. But really, uh, Ritual Deal Habitual is the end point, um, which was followed by the Lollapalooza tour, which was the first Lollapalooza, and which really tore the band apart. And uh, and they were never really the same after this. Even when they tried to reunite with Eric, it was pretty short-lived. Nubs, very interested in your thoughts on if this one matters. This album definitely matters. It stood apart from everything else going on in the 1990s. What people have to remember is this album came out before grunge was even like a word. This is 1990. This is pre-Nevermind. This is pre-10. This is pre-Bad Motorfinger. That gives this album a really unique place in the decade. Not that it has much to do with those albums, really. But it's all the same era. I mean, if you're going to corner Jane's Addiction into being a grunge act, which I don't think is entirely accurate, but usually they're put into that 90s category. This album stood so far apart musically from what was going on. It had, you know, it had a huge hit single, and then it had these epic tracks that most of the bands I mentioned couldn't even come close to writing, let alone, you know, actually performing. So it's an album that certainly matters. What do you think, T? Yeah, I, you know, tremendously matters. And in a lot of different ways. Genreless, original, incredibly original. And putting it in the context of what was happening, particularly in L.A. at this time, you really gain a lot of respect for these guys just really pushing the boundary, basically eliminating the boundary. That's what they did. I mean, these guys, these guys hated each other. You know, by the time this this recording was being wrapped up and I mean, you hear all kinds of stories about, you know, fist fights and guys not wanting to get on stage and all this stuff happening with this band on the tour that followed. I mean, it was really amazing that the dynamics and the state of mind of four people collectively could be so messed up and that this type of work could be produced. It's a real testament to the talent and, as I've said, athleticism of these four musicians. All right, Nubs, the final cut. Here we go. Is this on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or... Oh, no. Is it in the for sale then? <laughs> well, see, Ritual De La Habitual is in the collection. I listen to many elements from it regularly. The album ending is an issue. It just takes away from this being truly top to bottom. And there's a couple things in the first half that, you know, kind of pass through as well. It peaks in the middle. The sequencing is great. It's just those bottom two tracks. This album should end with some sort of like kingdom-like finish. 
and it just doesn't. It ends with a real, eh. so that would stop it from being an album that is regularly on the turntable, certainly in the collection should be for everybody. And, uh, and something I visit the elements of very, very regularly. How about you T what is your final cut? I'm interested in this one. You know, for me, it's in the collection and I agree with everything you said. I agree with everything you said. I think that the last two tracks, this thing kind of falls apart. I mean, and when you've got an album, that's this incredible. But the last 12 minutes of it, you're basically willing to forego. It makes it really difficult to put it on the turntable. And that's unfortunate because if you basically go from stop to then she did, it's like Maximus on the turntable, right? But, you know, the full album experience is the full album experience. And I think the last two tracks on this do kind of weigh it down. And so it's, it's probably a heavy in the collection, but that's where it sits for me as well. Tremendous moments, important moments, epic, powerful moments. But I do wish that it ended with a little bit more of the um, emotion and energy that you find throughout. All right. Well, we agree, which I guess, I don't know, kind of rare when it comes to the final cut, but uh, full agreement on this one. And, uh, Why don't we close things out as we uh, cool down here uh, and we bring on our pal Dolores. One time, Nubs, what's in your head, buddy? (laughs) A couple things that we've referenced previously. uh, Toto's 99 is in my head because I... We've had a a lot of Toto on. It's a lot of uh, Toto. in your head. Yeah, yeah, It's a lot of Toto. 99, one of my absolute favorites. We touched on the band Saliva in an indirect way during the Our Lady Peace episode. Um, And Rest in Pieces is a a really great song, no matter how you add it up. It's just a very, very well-composed song. And uh, that's been in my head. And then uh, a band that we've referenced uh, indirectly uh, is Blinker the Star. And We Draw Lines, the title track off what I believe is their most recent album. there it is there it is hey great call on blinker the star fantastic band glad glad they're in your head they are they are really good i've got uh a tune by a prog metal band called periphery that nubs helped get me into this uh, track is called loon which is kind of a longer piece and uh multiple genres and sounds and approaches and and loon really captures a bunch of those into into one track that's pretty epic by those guys so the second is um you mentioned last week uh uh, tied to record store day the band spiritualized and their song off laser guided melodies run uh, which obviously lifts uh, a a line uh, from uh, Leonard Skinnerd on the verses really really great track a little bit of a head head of its time track in the uh electronic uh prog pop festival rock if you will genre but uh, those guys did it well back then and then the third is by u2 off the uh octung baby album one of my favorites from those guys the opener zoo station which is a uh certainly one of my favorite u2 songs and you brought u2 to uh, uh round and round i believe a couple episodes ago and got me thinking that i really like that track zoo station so octung baby and pop have been great pandemic albums for me. I've, I've really put those on the rotation a lot during this whole ordeal. I'm not sure why, but they've just sounded extra good during the uh, pandemic. 
Well, it's good to know. Hey, listen, we uh, we need all the help we can get as we plow through this thing. Nubs, uh, great talking about this important, unique, outstanding collection of athletes that is Jane's Addiction with you. And uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation. I sure did. Loved it. It was a nice trip down a, a memory lane that is flooded with memories of you in your room listening to this album at full blast. Indeed. Make sure to check us out. We are on the Twitter. Uh, we are on the Spotify. We're on the Apple podcast. We're all over the interwebs, if you really think about it. And uh, let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you have any suggestions and and what you think of uh, the episodes of the old podcast here as we continue forward here. And we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you again very soon for the next episode, which I think will be 14. Here on Two Twins and an album. Two Twins and an album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.